host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on, man? Not much, man. I'm, uh, I, I think I'm going to uh, keep my uh, hockey writer credential this weekend because we're going to go up to uh, near a body of water. Uh, with my in-laws. Now, I don't have a cabin, but I just have like a camper, so don't tell anyone that part. But I get to keep my hockey rated card for another year because I'll spend part of uh, July near a body of water. So that's that's vital. So we can still yep. keep doing this show. The, the key is to, once you get there, take a picture of it and then tweet it out and be like, off off for the summer. Enjoy your enjoy the off season. See you guys in September. And then, uh, and then, and then just go from there. That's, yeah, the, uh, that's the key there. No, you don't have to you can leave out the part about the camper. You can just uh, the, leave the it up your imagination yeah. and just be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm at the cottage." That's you know, that's the that's... play. There's a, there's 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 a multi-million dollar cottage sitting behind me. You just have to paint it with your own brain. There so. you go. That's a veteran. That's a veteran hockey writer move there. Um, so here's the plan for today. It's our last episode that you and I are going to do this off season or this season uh, before we get into the off season, and so we're going to try to make it count. So uh, I got a couple of fun topics planned for us. The first block here, we're going to talk about a team that. I haven't discussed yet um, this offseason in the sense that I, I took last week off and then I came back this week and we've done kind of like a big two-parter looking at everything we missed since July 1st and what teams did uh, so far this offseason. And one team we notably didn't get to in in those two episodes were the Dallas Stars, who had a fascinating uh, process themselves, I think, in terms of what they chose to do this offseason in terms of trying to kind of consolidate the success they had last year where they made it to game six of the west final and trying to take that next step into becoming an even better team next year and so they signed matt duchene after he got bought out by the predators uh three million for one year they signed craig smith and sam Steele to to one-year deals for for peanuts essentially and then they bring back of getting to who was um wonderful for them after they acquired him at the deadline let's start with the duchene one uh, i'm kind of curious you know the timing of it was certainly interesting because I wouldn't say it necessarily came completely out of left field, right? The the Predators sort of telegraphed their intentions when they did what they did at the trade line, but also then previously uh, retaining on Ryan Johansson to get him out the door. And so it made sense that Duchesne was the next domino to fall in that regard. But the buyout did happen literally the day before free agency opened, right? So it was a quick turnaround in that regard. Now, Another guy who was bought out in that same window or time frame was Blake Wheeler, and he was someone who was linked quite heavily to Dallas. He went to the Rangers instead, but it wasn't necessarily a surprise that Jim Neal was shopping in this um, end of end of the the grocery store because this is a, a very up his alley. But um, they get to Shane. I'm kind of curious for your take on sort of the timing of that and how this plan came together and whether that was an initial intention of theirs or something to kind of keep a, keep tabs on or whether they might have had a different sort of plan and then once this opened up, they kind of pivoted on the fly. Well, like Matt Duchesne, obviously, I don't, no one really thought he was going to be available. We, he kind of was, as you, as you mentioned, that surprise availability of the, of the UFA class. And from a Dallas perspective, this was kind of the deal that they had looked to, uh, this was kind of the Max Domi spot for them. This was kind of the space where they were looking to potentially bring back both Dodonov and Max Domi 
looking at this type of potential deal with Domi. And, and Domi actually did kind of basically, he did sign the same deal basically with Toronto a couple of days later. Um, but from what I've heard and what I've read and other reporters as well is that basically at this time, right away on July 1st, Domi wasn't looking for, Domi wasn't looking for that type of deal at that spot. And so it became a pretty easily replaceable spot within the budgetary within the shopping cart of, of Jim Dill's offseason to replace, well, this was our Max Domi budget and just move it to Matt DeShane. Um, I, th- I think it was always going to be, they were always going to be trying to look to fill somebody to f- kind of bring in a, a a top six forward with with that with a smaller cap hit like that. And um, obviously do Shane's availability and the buyout and everything like that. And that changed the, it didn't, it just changed, kind of quickly changed how the Stars reacted. And mm-hmm. this is the Stars' MO, right? Like we've taught, like Jim Nill has a, Jim Nill is a, has a big history of signing guys, of being willing to, he wants to bring in those veterans who he thinks has a couple years left to are, and particularly often coming off buyouts. The Stars have Corey Perry in his time in Dallas um they signed him right after the buyout um they brought in and we, we've talked you know I've talked a lot about Ryan Suter but they they brought in Ryan Suter after the buyout whether that was the right decision or wrong decision that doesn't matter but for this but as part of Jim Nill's MO for the purposes of this coming off looking at guys off of buyouts guys looking to who have kind of already made their money want to come to a place where the stars often use the selling point of like when you ha- you have the no state income tax, use it. Come to Dallas. That three million dollars in in Dallas goes a pretty long way compared to some other places in the league. Obviously, Vegas and the Florida teams, and, and even Nashville had a similar style. And the Stars also were able to bring Duchesne to a place where, honestly, it's probably not too much of a change lifestyle wise in general. You talk about just a, a quick, easy change from Nashville to Dallas. Two places pretty similar lifestyle wise in general from from literally almost everyday life over there and uh so not a surprise that once Duchesne became available that he ended up in Dallas for me obviously just more of the surprise not surprise but more of it was more of the that he was available was the bigger thing but that once he was it became like oh, I obviously see Jim Neal calling Matt Duchesne right away mm-hmm. on this because of that yeah well let's talk about the fit then I I it's Obviously, a, a fun addition for them. I do think it'll be an immensely useful one because, at 32 years old at this stage of his career, he's you know, he's clearly not an eight million dollar player, which he was for the Nashville Predators, and he's also not someone who you can sort of rely on as a player. You just build your entire offense around as a top of the lineup type of guy, right? And you can yeah. even quibble that he ever really was, um, if you had Stanley Cup aspirations, but. Certainly earlier in his career, I think he could handle a bigger workload in that regard. Now, the beauty of this for Dallas is he doesn't really need to be that for them, right? They already have those guys. What he needs to be for them is something that he still is overqualified for, and and I think he can do really well, and that's being a secondary playmaker. It can be someone who kind of like lives in the shadows and potentially even takes shifts off or doesn't do anything for an extended period of time over the course of a game, and then all of a sudden just pops up, breaks a game open, makes a high skill level play, and all of a sudden you're cooking and that's what you 
brought him in with the intention to do. And so for all his other shortcomings, you look at any of the the track data or kind of player tenden- uh, player type tendencies or how he creates his shot, something he's still so good at is being a lethal downhill attacker, right? He carries the puck into the zone and he creates chances off of that. And so based on how Dallas showed they want to play last year under Pete Burr and what the rest of this lineup looks like, I do think from an on-ice fit perspective, it's also like a really smooth transition for him and one that I think he'll benefit from, not to mention that, you know, Hinson Robertson are going to take up so much of the defensive attention for other teams. And I think that'll go a long way to benefiting him as well, where he's going to get some softer mashups compared to what he was getting when he was in Nashville and there was just less firepower around him. Well, you look at, I mean, it's from an asset management standpoint too. If you include the Duchesne signing and then re-signing Dadanoff, if and looking at cap friendly here, right? Like it's, those two guys are your eighth and ninth highest paid forwards on the roster. When you're getting that role out of your eighth and ninth highest paid forward on the roster, that's that's a good piece of business for that role. And um, to, it's Dallas, they kind of needed, Duchesne fills like two parts of, he's a really great like breaking case of glass insurance policy on two fronts, I think, for Dallas that are that are really important. One, in the present day where, um, and I don't expect Joe Pavelski to slow down. He keeps, I, 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 Joe Pavelski is, I know Joe Pavelski's 39 now, but Joe Pavelski at some point age will get Joe Pavelski. I, I don't, it'll, it'll, it'll actually surprise us. He'll be like 53 and he'll, he'll be like 53 and, and then age will finally get him. But at some point age will get Joe Pavelski. So adding somebody who is a scorer, who, if that did happen this year, and I don't think it would, this is a nice little insurance signing. The other thing that I think is really nice about the Duchesne deal for Dallas from both the immediacy and the long-term build-out is it doesn't get in the way of if a Logan Stankoven is ready this year. And I think, I know a lot of Dallas fans have looked at Logan Stankoven and thought like, oh, he's going to be ready this year. And I think a lot of Dallas fans are being tricked by the success of Wyatt Johnston. I think why like Wyatt Johnston's success is setting unfair expectations for Logan Stankoven. We mm. Logan Stankoven, if he is that guy this year, incredible. But I think you have to have to remember he'll be making the jump from from junior to pro. He's a small he's he is a smaller guy. He's not a center like he's he's uh he's gonna be Stankoven, I think, is gonna have a little bit more of a learning curve and having to bring in Duchesne in it takes some of the pressure off of Stankoven being that solution right away. And if Stankoven is ready to play like that right away, I think the Stars have built up a style and a lineup now that fits Pete's DeBoer ideology where there's no longer a scoring line and then a checking line there. I think the way the way Dallas plays now, you've now created an opportunity where if Matt Duchesne is deep in the lineup, that's not an issue. If... Logan Stakehoven or another prospect, Maverick Bork, make the NHL team and they're low in the lineup, they're still playing an offensive game as opposed to being asked to do something they wouldn't do later in their career. So I, I think the Duchesne signing is a really good piece of insurance business for this season and for the long term. And the I think the one-year deal part of it too is also vital because it gives you gives both sides the chance to, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and it's not a big deal. Yeah, Rick Bonus right now is 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 pulling up the CBA and making sure that uh, you're actually illegally allowed to have a third and fourth line that can score because um, 
he was under the assumption that they had to just be specific grinder defensive types. So uh, that's certainly a revelation for for certain listeners of the show. But no, um, I'm curious to see how Pete DeBoer is going to use him because I think the natural inclination is to think, all right, well, they've already shown last year, you know, they bring in Domi, they they committed to Mason Marchman the previous summer in pre-agency, right? Uh, Tyler Sagan is still an important player for for this team offensively. When he's going, I think they're at a different level. And so I think the natural inclination to be like, all right, we're committed to those two guys. Let's put Duchesne because of his ability as a puck carrier and someone who can create with pace to try to get those guys going and make life a bit easier for them in transition and get them in better spots in the offensive zone. I actually think, though, and, and you know, when Dodonov played with Ben and Johnston, the three of them were clearly very good together. So maybe now that Dodonov's back, you just go with that and then the Duchesne falls in that natural spot on the third line or, or 2A, 2B type of formation. But I'd love to see Duchesne, and I messaged you when this happened, playing with Wyatt Johnston because Johnston has already shown yep. this kind of innate ability to just get lost in coverage, sniff out soft spots in the offensive zone and just be wide open there. And you're like, how is this guy who's everyone knows is really good has so little defensive coverage around him and it's because he just kind of waits and waits and probes and then all of a sudden he pops up and he's open on the slot. And having Duchesne's playmaking with him, I'd be very curious to see that, especially in transition, if that could be sort of a second wave of rush offense for them because the team likes to attack off the rush, but it looks different when Rube Hintz is out there doing it as opposed to when everyone else is. And so I think that's why Domi was such a revelation for them when he came over the deadline because he was able to give them an element of that and Duchesne clearly can still at this point of his career. So I'd love to see them experiment with that a little bit. I'm sure we'll see doses of yeah. it here and there as the season gets gone. And I think you could play around with it a couple of ways. You could go, um, I really like, I think Dadanov was, at, we saw how much the Stars secondary rush offense kind of took a hit when Dadanov was hurt and late in that series against Vegas. I think Dadanov, um, you could play Dadanov and Duchesne with Wyatt Johnson. You could potentially play around with something like that. and Or you could move Dadanov down to another line and play him with Sagan. Like, I, I think this opens up a lot of different options to find the different things that work. Like if if you had to, it's July thirteenth or whatever, right? Like if you had to guess right now, be like, oh well, they'll probably go Ben Johnston, uh, Dadanoff to start the season just because of the recent history. But I think there's a lot here where the stars need and owe it to themselves to play around with early in the season to figure out how this works because it's you got pieces that move. And then the big thing, I think for all of this for Dallas and the big what if, right, is. Mason Marchman, where you, you made the big commitment to Mason Marchman. He's still got three years left at four and a half. Um, he had a really rough first year in Dallas. Is he is he still part of your quote-unquote top nine, or are you biting the bullet on a let's move, he becomes a fourth-line player just making, making, making a big chunk of change? That's another big kind of like what if for me on Dallas of how this stuff plays out because – Obviously, when you're watching the playoffs last year and everything like that, and you watched Dallas last season, for all the excitement that was when they brought Marchman in and everything like that, of, of oh, we got this, brought this goal scorer, and it really didn't pan out that way. And uh, Well, it, to the yeah, point yeah. where it got a bit uncomfortable where you'd watch the games in that Vegas series, and I was like, Frederick Olofsson's 
probably more useful in terms of helping them win these games right now than Marchment was. Yeah. And they got into an uncomfortable position where they essentially had to pick who to play and their commitment to Marchment sort of won out, right? And that's not why team lost, of course. Yeah. Like it, it extends well beyond that. But that kind of highlights this this sort of crossroads they're at in terms of commitments they've made to players and that, that ties into the studio conversation, which we're going to have here as well. And sort of balancing that with what is actually the most optimal thing if you're trying to win games right now. Yeah, I mean, in the Marchment, the commitment to Marchment too, and not that Frederick Olsen is somebody anyone's building their team around, but it's one of the reasons he was basically traded away for future considerations to Colorado in one of kind of the weirder deals in mid-June was because he saw that Dallas, when it came time for who was going to play, Dallas picked Mason Marchman, and Olofsson was going to be a UFA this summer, and he was probably going to leave Dallas either way, and so they had that little weird future considerations deal, but it's the contracts make jobs, right? Like, that's the, it's the, it's the, it's the reality of it so often. Um, Some coaches are a little more forward thinking about it in the playoffs than others, but in the regular season, for sure, it doesn't, like, you have to, in the regular season, you're going to play the guy making four and a half million. It's yeah. just whether it's just depends on how palpable you can make it. Well, and I think it's I'm pretty high on the on this team. I mean, in general, but also like offensively, if you just look at the way the the forward depth chart is shaking out, right? There's a lot of depth, a lot of talent. There are a lot of different ways that you can create offense. And this was already a team that finished seventh in scoring last year and was one of the better offensive teams in the league. Now. I think there are room, there is room for growth because they were only 13th or 14th, I believe, in 5-on-5 scoring, right? A lot of that was driven by how lethal their power play was. And in the most important parts of the season in that Vegas series, you could sort of see that against a different defensive team, some of that depth they thought they had kind of dried up, right? I think aside from the first line, they only got a goal from one of their uh, other three Lions in like one of the six games, and then they got shut out as a team in game six with their season on the line. And so there are ways for improvement and optimization here. And I do think that this offense could even conceivably be better next season. And for a team that did finish seventh in scoring, that's obviously a very intriguing opposite about proposition. I think so. I, I think it's, I think you're going to have year two of Pete DeBoer's system to. You're going to have, uh, we talked about the f- some of the fourth line moves with them bringing in Craig Smith and bringing in um, Sam Steele. I think that fourth line becomes, you re- that you replace a Luke Lindenning with guys who actually have a little bit more offensive transition. I think all of a sudden, I think DeBoer can actually run more of a fourth line that he actually likes than he was able to personnel-wise last year. So I, I think that all contributes to what you're talking about here where this team can take another offensive step which to is going to be vital frankly with what what they how they're rolling things about on the back end right mm. well before we get to the back end yeah. I, yeah. just to kind of close yeah. the loop on this because you brought this up earlier um you know part of my logic for th- believing that they could get even better offensively before we even got to july 1st was i did have aspirations for for Logan Stankoven and even a Maverick Bork to step in and maybe not have the success that Wyatt Johnson had last year, certainly, because I think that's kind of like an exception rather than the rule. Yeah. At least have a chance to give them an even different dynamic in terms of just like having this 
creativity and skill and juice that they didn't have otherwise. And obviously getting that at an ELC is so valuable to a team like this that's in their cup contention window. Now, you bring in all of these guys, right? You bring back to Donov, you bring in Duchesne, you bring in even Craig Smith and Sam Steele. With Ty Delandre's RFA deal still to be sorted out, once that happens... Actually, it, it's actually been sorted. Well, it has. That's going. Okay, Mid- there we Mitch, go. Mitch, 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 Mitch show here. Uh, one year, 900K. Wow. So. Uh, well, there we go. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Ty Delandre guy. I would have... Yeah. And, and, you know, they weren't in a position to do this because of how tied up against the cap they were. I believe they had like 1.4 million or something to play with once yeah. they sent Gavin Peruther down as their eighth defenseman. Yep. But I would have loved to see them go like the... You know, I remember that Colton Sissons contract when it came out when it was yeah, like, yeah. whatever, six, seven years at like two million yeah. per and everyone's yeah. like, what, what's going on here? And usually you don't yeah, want to I, give that type of term to, to depth players, but I do believe just based on the age and I'd agree like there is, that would be a deal that would be beneficial to the Stars moving forward, but they obviously weren't in a position to do so at this point. Um, But so, okay, with the Landry assigned, they have 13 NHL forwards mm-hmm. and that doesn't include staying Coben and Bork. Now, there will be yep. injuries, right? You can certainly just part of the beauty of having Craig Smith at one million is is you can just you can bury that. Like it's not it's not going to preclude you if those guys come to camp or preseason and show out and and force your hand. You can go that route. You're not stopped from doing so. But you do have 13 legitimate NHL forward options right now, and so it doesn't block the path, but it certainly muddies the waters a bit in that regard. And especially with the amount of players that would theoretically be in those top nine kind of scoring roles more so. Um, part of why Wyatt Johnson, I think, was so successful last year was it was the rare situation where a young player came in and immediately got to play in a favorable position, right? It wasn't like, a, all right, you're going to play with Luke Lindenning and Radic Fax on the fourth line and have to earn your minutes. And, and then when you're not scoring, people are like, oh, well, see, he's struggling. He wasn't ready for it. And then he gets sent back down. He actually got a chance to shine, and he took full advantage of it. Now, I do not, I don't think that at least out of the gate, Stankoven or Bork will unfortunately be afforded that opportunity. I don't think they will either. Um, I also, I do think I'm less scared about them playing on the fourth line with this team because I'm a little bit if I'm a little bit more comfortable with one of them with one of them playing with a Ty Delandria with a title Andriana Sam Steele mm-hmm. as opposed to a Radic Fox. And now Radic Fox is also a big question too, where obviously he is kind of a, I think Fox is a fine checking line setter, but he is a bit of a relic of the old coaching staff where I think there's other, there's, he would get, he's a more effective player in other systems. He's not really, he's kind of the type of player where this star's system I don't think he fits as much. So I, I honestly, I don't know anything for sure on this. It's just, this is just me playing armchair GM here is like, it would not surprise me if at some point Radic Fox's time in Dallas ended before the, this three point before these two, this two years remaining on this deal. end. that would not surprise me. Um, so I think that they have at least, they're not going to get the Wyatt Johnston second line minutes role. That's not going to happen. But I do think, you haven't blocked them, but I do think you've created a spot where there is a legit space where you can, they can earn, they can earn the spot and they can earn, they can, they can, they can get that spot and they can earn it. And I think they will play. I believe they'll play NHL games this year. I believe both will. 
Um, and I also am more and more of a firm believer of because of the nature of the sport and injuries and like just to be like Rope hints, we both love his game so much, but Rope hints is probably going to miss 15 games a year because of an injury. That's the reality. Um, Mason Marchment dealt with injury. Like you're going to have, I think you have to be 15 forwards deep. And I think, I, I believe the stars are 15 forwards deep now. Um, and I think whether it's by design or necessity or whenever, I think Stankov and, and Bork are going to find their way into this group. And I think they will have some of those opportunities at some point of the season. I'm just interested to see what they do with it. Um, like like Stankoven, I think, obviously has a ton of potential. I'm really interested to see his jump from the... Um, to pro hockey. Bork is a guy who I think Bork went through that a little bit of that struggles with the Texas stars where he had some of the, this is the pro game, but Bork is a guy who I think will actually be better um, in the NHL than he is in the AHL because he's more of that playmaker where I think playing with better players will unlock a little bit more of his game for Bork. Um, and I think he's, I, I think he may be a little bit more ready to Stepping in play with with certain guys than Stankoven. I'm I'm really curious to see Stankoven against in the pro game because I I really think that jump from junior to pro it's what made what Johnston did even so much more impressive. That really is a wall that a lot of guys hit, and the Stars kept expecting Wyatt Johnston to hit that wall last year. Like they kept like they kept being like, oh well, like going into the season they're like, well you know what, Wyatt Johnston will be on the NHL team. Uh, we can send him back to Team Canada for World Junior. If we need to, we can do the six-game conditioning stint. Like, they they expected Y Johnston season to look a little bit more like the Shane Wright season in Seattle. And, like, every time a wall, a potential wall would pop up, the kid just smashed through it. And it's just... And more kudos to Wyatt Johnson. If you you can get me back on track, it's your job here to do. Well, that. Wyatt Johnson was <laughs> Wyatt Johnson is special, but I do believe that the like Logan Stankoven is as well. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be as you mentioned um, demonstrated right out of the gate, but uh, he he will get there. And and it, you're right, they're in a position where it's it's always risky when teams just sort of pencil in their prospects to hit their absolute ceiling right away. It's like all right, well. We have this guy, and he's been good at lower levels, and so if he just steps in and, and, and repeats that here at the NHL, we'll be fine. And then if it doesn't happen, all of a sudden you don't have a backup plan. The Stars have many other alternatives and routes they can take, and so that's a very smart thing to do as, as a team in their position. But, um, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to watch them play at this level. All right, Sean, let's take our break here, and then when we come back, we'll keep talking about the Stars and a few other topics. You are listening to the Hockeypedia guest streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Missing the Canucks? Subscribe to the Canucks Central Podcast and get alerts for breaking news episodes. Daily shows return in September. All right, we're back here in the Hockey PDO cast with Sean Shapiro. Sean, we spent the first half of the show talking about everything the Stars did so far this offseason, and, you know, the efforts were almost entirely focused or centered around adding to the forward group and focusing on improving there. And so I guess the other side of the coin then is that the extent of the work they did on their blue line was essentially sending Colin Miller to, to New Jersey for 
uh, a bag of pucks and sticks and bringing back Joel Hanley to sort of reprise his role. And I, you know, I, I guess let's start with this. What that means then is that they chose to forego this unique opportunity they had to essentially pull the shoot on the Ryan Shooter, Shooter experience and get out from under that contract, save themselves $2.87 million both this year and next. And I think most importantly, as we've talked about, as you wrote about before the, the free agency period started, essentially take a toy away from Pete DeBoer and be like, you know what, you can't use him mm-hmm. as much as you did last year. And you might say you that, that, that you'll change this offseason, but then as soon as the games start, you'll probably wind up going back to old reliable in that regard. And so we're just not going to let you do so. And yeah. I think that was the... the you know, the, the cap savings and maybe reallocating that to actually bring in someone better was certainly intriguing. But I think just the addition by subtraction in the sense that just just making sure that he wouldn't play top pair minutes and second unit power play next season was the biggest selling point for me. And the fact that they chose not to do so, ultimately, it's not disastrous, but I do, it, it does give me kind of a little bit of cause for concern. Yeah, I mean it's it's a defense that's good enough for the stars to reach where they reached this year, and it's it's a, like I think that's 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 the that's a reality, and I think but the other just big thing that the stars did while they went and improved, they basically going into the season, they put a lot of they they took they put put a lot of question marks in the blue line. Uh, is is Essel and Dell gonna? find for me had two years ago is Ryan Suter is Pete DeBoer going to better is that is the coaching staff going to better use Ryan Suter in a role that he probably should be used is Yanni Hockenpah going to come back healthy is he even going to be is is, is, is he going to come back healthy I believe Thomas I like I, in my I, I believe Thomas Harley is the star's second best defenseman right now how good of a second best defenseman is he if he is he is he a great second best defenseman or is it the fact he's the second best defenseman more of a concern and then you have the Nils you made the Nils Lundqvist trade you have to like it's a lot of it's Miro Heiskanen and then a bunch of question marks and for I think you're not going to be exposed as much in a regular season format with teams but I do I would have concerns like what happened with Dallas against Vegas and even against Seattle in the playoffs where this defensive unit, this defensive core would go in and you give another coach four or five games against them, you'd start to see pretty some pretty fun ways to pick them apart. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was second on the Stars in ice time and played eight five on five minutes more than anyone on Vegas in the West Final is just kind of like unfathomable to me, but I guess shouldn't be surprising because essentially when, when Haskinen was out there, unless it was a situational ozone draw where they would put Harley with him. It was Suter out there. Even after catastrophic mistakes, they would just send him back out there because that's the leeway that veterans are afforded in this league. And so, I don't know. I just, I would have loved to see them open the runway for Harley and a potentially another left-handed shot option to get those minutes instead. And or even potentially actually just finally sticking to having Miro Haskinen playing on his strong side because I don't think that Ryan Suter is a good enough reason for him to be playing on his offside, even though Haskinen obviously has a lot of experience doing so. Uh, we saw that he he was pretty successful playing on his strong side with Colin Miller for for large stretches of last season. And so, I I guess ultimately, if they if you truly do believe that they are gonna stick with giving Harley 
significantly more usage. And finally, just like having Neil Zonquist in there and relying on him and, and playing him more than that sort of internal development of those guys and giving you at least one person who can pass the puck to a forward cleanly uh, when they're out there gives you reason for hope. I just, I, I think you, you haven't eliminated the option for this coaching staff to once push comes to shove, go back to just leaning on Suter and Haskinen and then potentially even putting like Hawk and Pa when he's healthy and Lindell back together. And then that means that Nils Lankos probably isn't playing anymore. And that's exactly the scenario we saw last year. And I haven't really seen anything to lead me to believe that suddenly next year is going to be different. Like maybe in the regular season, become the playoffs, unless something changes here, it's probably going to at some point wind up going back into that exact same scenario. At a minimum, the simplest thing you could do if you're like, okay, you have to roll back with this group. At a minimum, you could be like, okay, just don't put Ryan Suter on the power play. Like it's time to give... You, you have to let Thomas Harley and Nils Lundqvist, you have to want, let one of them emerge as the second power play guy, as a, for the second unit power play guy. That's the minimum. And you may do that in November. You may do that in December. But it's still the fear that come April, come May, that all of a sudden power play unit's not working and all of a sudden you pull, well, let's pull out the veteran and put him out there. That's, that's really one of the big things I keep going back to. And you and I have talked about this before. Of When you kept that option for the coaching staff you have kept it as a big option you kept it as a club in the bag that it's gonna be hard for them not to pull it it's just like the golfer who's like you really shouldn't hit driver on this hole really you're not don't do it don't do it and you're like yeah i'm I'm gonna hit driver it'll work this time and then it goes in the water for the 15th time in a row (laughs) yeah i mean especially when you have harley lundquist like it's uh, the idea of and, and this first power play is so good that oftentimes that's all that really matters it's it's like They'll either score or they'll give the second unit 30 seconds to play with, and it doesn't necessarily matter that much. But if you're rolling out, especially now with Duchesne there, like Ben Duchesne to Donna Johnston and, and Harley, for example, like that would be that would be a very good first power play unit for many teams in this league. And so that would be a nice luxury to have at your disposal. But I don't know, I guess that's part of also the the, the ride suitor dilemma. Like yeah, I think he he wants those minutes. And then and so um, you don't want him necessarily sulking either or, or being like, ah, oh, like I, I should be playing these minutes instead of this other guy and then that causing other problems. So I think that's kind of the situation that they've backed themselves into here. I, I think Thomas Arley has shown me enough that he's clearly their second best defenseman at this point. Yes, yes, he is. He is. I guess the, the the question is, you know, you mentioned, is that a problem? I, I think the bigger question is, is is he good enough or does, does his coaching staff rely on him enough at this point to carry his own pair right because yeah. if he is your second best defenseman you probably don't want him playing full-time with Miro Haskin and regardless because then that you know you, you're really leaving yourself stretched thin on the other two pairs but then if he's not good enough and then all of a sudden he is playing with someone like Hockenpah well that's probably not ideal as a second pairing either and so that that, that that's tricky I think a lot of this will depend on on just kind of how good he can be uh, i'm a believer in him certainly but you know this is ultimately like this is these are champagne problems in the sense that we're talking about a team that should be trying to win a stanley cup next season and so it, it's it's good enough but once you get to the west final or you get to a stanley cup final this is where these things kind of you shine a brighter light on them yeah agreed um okay any other notes on the stars here or do you want to move on to uh, a few other kind of 
fun, random out there topics. Let's go random. Let's go random. All right. Let's well, talk about the coaching clinic you visited because it's yeah, been a while it. now. So I'm not yeah, sure if it's still uh, yeah, fresh on your mind, it. but it happened right before the draft. And so we didn't yeah. have a chance to talk about it yet, but you got to see a a fun kind of grab bag of NHL coaches um, yeah. and, and, and a, a prominent uh, college coach as well um, speak at this coaching clinic. And so I'm kind of curious for the most interesting or insightful, I guess, anecdotes or kind of observations or, or things you heard talked about um, that kind of came up during that during that seminar. Yeah, I mean, it's so I went to the coaches site was the one that ran it, and basically I just paid to go as an attendee to this this coaches clinic that they host in Ann Arbor now every year. And um, the things that just kind of <laughs> one thing that just kind of popped for me just watching it was interesting was the. There was a lot of talk about how certain teams play across the league and everything like that. And um, now Bruce Cassidy didn't wasn't at this coaching clinic, but a lot of other coaches talked about Vegas and they they, they were in there. And there was a very interesting kind of conversation about how, frankly, there's in the def- in the NHL defensive zone coverage. There's basically three different types of coverage, a little bit probably about 50-50 in zone, 50-50 and in, um, in zone, more of a zone, 50-50 man or whatever. Where And then there's what Boston and Vegas does, where the team that won the cup and the team that won the regular season basically are the only two that play so strict where they literally stick where their defensemen are almost an extension of the posts. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to, we've seen that. Like I, it's, it's one of those things when you, when you, it's one thing to see it watching a game yourself as a reporter or an analyst or whatever, but then it's another thing to hear coaches talk about it and to talk about how specifically, how much that they can. And it, I'll tell you, it gave me a lot more, not to take anything away from what Jim Montgomery did, but it also just gave me more and more of an appreciation from hearing other coaches talk about how much they still saw Bruce Cassidy's imprints on what Boston did this year. So for a coach who wasn't even there, to hear other coaches, his peers basically talk about kind of what he was doing there. Um, and Pete DeBoer spoke at this clinic too, and he was actually pretty good because he was someone who obviously coach was the prior coach in Vegas, who it was. And, uh, and so that, that was a pretty good thing. And then the, the well, other thing that before you move on to okay, defensive yeah, coverage, yeah, 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 the note yeah. that I wanted to make there was yeah. Bruce Cassidy certainly deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, the other name that I will point out there on a, on a similar note was those couple of years where the Islanders were firing on all cylinders under Barry Trotz. The the only team that was really able to beat them during that time was that absolutely stacked Tampa Bay Lightning team. And mm-hmm. they pushed yep. them to the um as far as they as they really yep. got in those two conference finals. And the reason why Tampa Bay was able to beat them was because of how unique their own offensive zone scheme was. I mean obviously just having Kutrov unlocks so much for you. But they were one of the few teams that just wasn't really wasting time with having a net front guy just kind of stand in front of the net and be very stationary there. Instead, mm-hmm. they would have like Alex Kalorn kind of darting laterally behind the goal line and then coming out front and popping into the slot and doing all this stuff. And so that gave them trouble because they were similarly just packing the paint in that regard. And other teams were like, all right, well, we just can't 
figure out how to get in there. And Tampa Bay was like, well, that's not a problem for us because we're just going to play differently against that. And so you need the, certainly the personnel to do so. But it's interesting hearing you talk about that kind of uh, harken back to those epic battles between those two teams in the yeah. in the finals for a couple of years there. Yeah, and it's to hear coaches talk. I, I really it's kind of one of those, like you're at a coach's clinic as a reporter and you feel like you're the the cliche like wolf in sheep's clothing because you're hearing them break down things that they would never ever break down for a media member in season. Where um, DeBoer talked about how in that series against Vegas, how they intentionally tried to start bringing Jason Robertson higher in the zone against Vegas to try to bring how to how to uh, to, to try to to try to get bring him up a little bit, chase. yeah, yeah, to bring up a little bit of the zone and how in that same series, um, the uh, because Dallas really Dallas has a pretty aggressive swarm type defense where when the they send the second guy in the zone right and how. Vegas basically kind of picked them apart by having Jack Eichel go right to the dot, where Dallas even noticed it, where it's like, okay, the minute we start doing that, Eichel just goes right to the dot, and then Eichel becomes that either shooter or distributor right from there. It's the type of things that you get from a coaching staff that we may notice, but especially in the playoffs, we're never going to get that type of transparency. Um, the only type of media members they ever give that transparency to in general are typically the play-by-play guys in those little... In the, it's always kind of one of the funny things where a coach will have the media availability and then he'll meet with the rights holder and the broadcasters and that's when they give all the state secrets and the broadcasters are basically like, you can see this, but you can't say we told you this. Like It's, it's that type of stuff. Um, I, the other thing that was just kind of cool to see from a perspective of how things work sometimes is uh so Derek Lalonde the coach in Detroit gave a presentation on the power play and Derek Lalonde doesn't run the power play in Detroit that's Alex Tangay's job but he did run the power play for Team USA at Worlds this past year and he basically brought in the exact presentation he gave to the Team USA players with clips and everything and basically broke down exactly how you go through and how he taught the Red Wings power play to Team USA and it was just a really interesting thing to sit there and take it in that way and look at the examples of how do you implement a power play? How do you how do you break down this? How do you focus on this? Um, and there's a, there's a lot there. Like I filled the whole, I got a whole notebook on my desk here of stuff that I'm probably kept audio recordings that I'm sure I'll listen to while mowing the lawn later this summer to try and like to to try to get a to to, to get even more. But a ton of stuff there. I mean, it's the and then the other thing that was just kind of fun to see from a and he didn't talk as much about his system but um the coach at michigan uh, brandon naruto has runs a, kind of a pretty different system but in college hockey there's obviously obviously michigan's a powerhouse they you know they haven't won a title since 97 or whatever um my buddy marty turco will uh is is both kind of doesn't like that point and likes that point he's the last goalie to win a title he's the last goalie to win a title there he won two of them but the you talk about the strength of the athletic department at the University of Michigan, where the University of Michigan hockey team has almost a dozen data analysts working with them on everything from in-game data to to sleep to load management and how they specialize and build their practices from a load management standpoint was fascinating, where they've basically gone and they've taken the data of 
this drill of say this two on two drill is a green drill and then this battle drills a red drill and so they build their pre and, and they build their practices out that way so the energy is optimized for friday night of a college hockey season and it was just interesting to hear how they use and, and how a division one team uses that and obviously that's a advantage of being one of the richest division one programs there is too so a lot of stuff there i mean I'm gonna let you talk a little bit though. Too. No, well, no, no. I, I, I'm fascinated about all yeah. that. Obviously, you get a kind of behind the curtain that, as you mentioned, um, you wouldn't otherwise get to see under normal circumstances. So you saw the lawn there, right? You saw Pete DeBoer. You saw Brandon Rodgers. You mentioned um, who else was there? Glenn Gullitson was there. Glenn Glenn Gullitson was there. Told a pretty great story about how the uh, end of the the when the Oilers were, the Oilers really wanted to break the power play record that the they were in there. It was the last game of the season. Um, there's something like one for four on the power play. And uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl basically turned to Goldson and be like, we're good. We have the record, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we've got the record. And so then Dreisaitl yelled at, basically yelled at the official that the, the Oilers didn't want any more power plays. And the uh, and so, so Dreisaitl yells at the ref. The ref like gives like a weird book, skates by. The ref skates by again. Dreisaitl like reiterates, no more power plays. Like a couple minutes later, there's like a blatant trip, and like Clem Costin stands up and starts yelling to complain to the ref, and the ref just turns and is like, "I thought you guys said no more power plays." Now the irony of all of this is Clem Costin was later traded away, so maybe maybe Clem was off. Maybe maybe Clem's attempt to maybe uh, maybe Clem's attempt to get yeah, rid his of, days uh, were numbered. Yeah, 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 but after after not being on the same page of the power play uh, record, but that was that was kind of that, that's a, that was a fun story to come out of that. Um, and then uh, you just the other thing that was just you hear uh, it's kind of uh, what are stereotypes or what are actual player archetypes is interesting because like throughout this entire clinic, now the coach the, the the coach of the women's Czech national team was there, um, and that somehow set an entire tone of every single coach throughout praising how Czech players are born to protect the puck better than it better than anyone else and there was a ton of Thomas Hurdle praise and <laughs> everything like that so it was it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting weekend and then Ryan Huska also spoke as well who was the who was now obviously the coach in Calgary um, he had recently just been recently named the coach in Calgary mm. time too right before this happened so what did he talk about yeah he Huska was uh, what was his let me get my notes here the uh Huska was talking more about the. He was talking about the penalty kill, and the, mm. and it was the, it was the talking about the Flames penalty kill, talking about other penalty kills in general, and it was interesting to see kind of the. Um, I'm using the word interesting way too much, but the uh, the internal debate of do you use the the diamond? Do you use the box? Where do you use more aggressive? And the discussion of the ins and outs of why Calgary might try one thing this year versus next year and, and everything like that. And and obviously he has a little bit more autonomy too with that. I mean, you know, he had autonomy last year, but at the end of the day, the head coach is the one that's going to the final you know, say. Yeah, yeah. Now he has the final say on that. Oh, well, that's cool. Um, yeah. Brennan Rado is someone I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, because he's clearly had a lot of success, but he's also just very highly regarded. And, and especially, you know, with how, um, I mean, the amount of talent that I guess has has funneled through that program recently, but also how just the league is getting younger and younger, right? The, the, this was why when 
when the Ducks were still um, in the hiring process after they let Dallas Higgins go, I wanted them to almost kind of hire like a really young coach, maybe even someone from major junior that had worked with a lot of these players recently, just because I get that it's a big jump to go from working with teenagers to all of a sudden working with like grown men at the professional level and, and the two leagues don't really have much to do with each other. But if all, if the demographic you're working with in terms of your own players are all those guys that you just had experience with, it's not as big of a jump, right? And so we're getting into these situations where for some of these teams, that is the case, especially rebuilding ones. And so um, I'm sure that whatever his uh, his time is up in Michigan, he's going to have plenty of interest and opportunities, at least as like a an assistant coach to uh, to work his way up to the pro level. For sure. He's someone who will be, I mean, it's it's the kind of the the nature of that Michigan job, right? Like you can probably go one of two ways. There's the, you could do what Red Barons did, where Red was there for forever and it was a lifetime job and you're a hockey legend for in, in, in Ann Arbor. And, or you go the way where you're there for, I think you just recently signed a five-year contract, I think, or whatever, but you go there, you win the big, t- you, you win a bunch of big 10 titles, you get some high round picks and eventually you make the decision to make the jump. It'll be interesting to see which way it goes because it's like, you talk about cushy jobs and I don't know what he's getting paid at Michigan, but you talk about cushy jobs where you, where you're getting 12, where you're getting a dozen, getting the resources for a dozen analysts for your team. I don't know how many NHL teams have a dozen analysts working on, on things for their teams. So I love that. Um, all right, Sean. Well, this is a blast. I'm going to let you go here and enjoy, uh, enjoy your off season. Enjoy the, uh, the lake life. Uh, for the next couple of weeks and months here before we get back into it in the fall. So uh, we had a blast here having you on as a regular this season. So uh, looking forward to reprising that again next year, man. Enjoy the offseason. Thank you to the listeners for listening to us. Uh, if you enjoy the show, go smash that five-star button wherever you listen to the PDO cast. And we'll be back tomorrow with one more episode of the show to close out the week here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.